Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasberry. This is Frank Pelican. And tonight we are going to be continuing in our year-long effort to go through the top B horror movies of the 1980s. Tonight we will be going through the year 1982. I have to tell you, Frank. Earlier today, I thought for a second that we were doing the Shakespeare list that we're going to be doing next week and I got really excited mm. and then I remembered that we're doing these horror movies <coughs> and your excitement waned my excitement right yeah you're really diminished. You'll, you'll be fine um <clears throat> I will admit this is better at <laughs> least from my perspective than 80 or 81 so right. far well, there's no Friday the 13th on this list that automatically that is a huge plus yeah. huge I don't, I don't, bonus I don't know the, you, you, you'll have one more Friday the 13th I think at some four? Point. Uh, four, well, uh, four or five, I can't remember. No, okay. No, we won't get into spoilers. So, by this time, do you see, I wanted to ask you, do you see anything changing even from the first couple years of the 80s in terms of horror at this point? Uh, no, nah, this is still like, maybe there's a little more production value sometimes in these, and... Mm-hmm. Not all of these movies, obviously, but I I think there's I think there's a little more realization from like creators of these movies that they can't take themselves too seriously. So you see like a little more <clears throat> like it's it's a little more self referential and a little more tongue in cheek. And they're also starting to like I don't know if it's just like plagiarism or it's like homage, but they're starting to like call back to previous movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think there still is some. I don't know that. You know, like nothing quite reaches the heights of something like The Evil Dead or, um, you know, only like one of these movies on this list do I really consider to be like, an actually like like a. Like a mostly like good film, but there's. I think people are starting to realize that in order to really stand out, you have to like change the formula a little bit, or at least like add something to it. So there's maybe maybe that's why you find it a little more enjoyable because there's maybe a little more creativity. They're not just like I mean, and obviously during this time, there's like dozens of movies that are standard like slasher fare. And well, I think even looking at this list, I see one, I see two different things happening. One is I see more of a sense of subversion happening in one place as trying to add something unique to it. Mm. Then I see in another place where it's like, it's really going for that kind of gross out gore factor, even more than usual. Right. And I, I, it seems to me that that's, that's two, two different types of strategies that are being undertaken to stand out certainly. And I'm assuming there's going to be more down the road where they start trying to branch off and stand out from one another. But I mean, there's several movies in the next few years, like after this, that are, um, like I consider like high watermarks for the horror, like genre in general. Um, in, in this list, there's a couple of movies that I think kind of set the stage for that somewhat. Um, I don't know like really how much critical analysis you can give it. Um, but you know, some of them are. A couple are just like horror movies, but mm-hmm. you know, to your point, like I think there's a little more, a little more of a sense of like the idea that you can include like sort of social commentary or like really deal with like actual like 
I don't know, like psychological issues Mm -hmm. without really getting too in depth where it's like overrides just the enjoyment of watching like a slasher movie. Which is something that's not new at this point in time. I mean, it's been done before in terms of taking tackling social issues in horror movies. I mean, Romero's doing it almost 15 years before right. this. And Roger Corman always felt like he was doing it in his movies. Sure. So, But it, it's somewhere like in this early part, it seems a lot of it's gotten lost to me like in these first couple of years. And now I start to see this it creeping back in a little bit around like at least like i said in one of these movies well one of the things and i'm not like a film historian but i'm pretty sure one of the things that was happening at this time was you're starting to come into in the next few years you'll get movies that are made specifically to be watched on vhs they're movies that are made to be distributed to video rental outlets Mm -hmm. and not necessarily as major feature film releases and this is so early for it, but you didn't really have as many movie theaters, I don't think, during this time. Like, there was a lot of, um, like, really the rise of the multiplex doesn't happen until the early 90s. So, a lot of smaller theaters are closing down. So, there's not a lot of chance to see, um, you know, like, where we grew up, like, you're not going to go see any of these movies Maybe one or two of these was shown in the theater, and I think only maybe one, honestly, if I had to really think about it, would have actually been, like, a full theatrical release. Yeah. But for the most part, like, this is that weird, like, gray time between... Because, honestly, if if you look into these movies, like, you'll see that a lot of them really gained cult following, like, with the advent of VHS and, like, people, like, renting, um, like, video copies of them, and they weren't, like you know, popular because people saw them in the theater. They were popular, like, later after their release. Um, two of them, three of them, I would think, specifically. Um, and also, this is the rise of cable television, too. So this is where, like, people are first becoming, you know, turned on to these movies through HBO or, um, you know, like, those late-night uh, horror movie shows that would be on and, um, and probably, you know, highly edited versions of it. Um, sure. So, I don't know. I mean, it really... Like, a lot of foreign production companies were making horror movies around this time. And two of these movies are very specifically, like, foreign films. Um, and the other three are, like, honestly, just independent. Well, two of the two of the other three are independent movies, you know, that were low budget with, like, low distribution. Right. And then one that's an actual, like, theatrical release. But because it had a name behind it and both the name of like in terms of like the director and also like the creator. Um, So I don't know. Definitely like two years from now, you see a lot more actual like a shift to being like more higher production values, um, better acting, better scripts. Um, from like the American releases. Uh, so, I mean, one of them, like I didn't even see until probably the early nineties just from VHS. And I don't know how much it was even available. Uh, one was like a staple of my life in terms of horror movies for a long time. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. To the point of the acting is like, I'm assuming at some point I'm assuming this and maybe I'm wrong. You just think about something like Fright Night. Right. Where Chris Sarandon 
even by that point has real acting roles to his mm-hmm. credit. And then Rodney McDowell, who's actually going to end up being talked about next week in a Shakespeare right. movie, like is in a horror movie that even if it doesn't make the list could potentially make one of these lists. So like the acting really does get better over time sure. in a lot of ways. Um, and you're right. The production values are much better. And I think there's people that are taking the direction a little bit more seriously. I'll be, I'll be interested to go back and look at when we get to the mid eighties, how that is. But it's like some of these movies, definitely people are care about the, right. the actual cinematography and direction. And, <clears throat> And are sometimes hampered by the production values, but I think that is becomes they're much more conscious of those things by the time we get to the mid to late eighties. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, some of my favorite horror movies of all time are going to be in the next like you know few months talking yeah. about on these lists. So, yeah. and movies that I think are actually kind of transcendent in some ways of the genre mm. <clears throat> because they're just I don't want to say better because I really like like everything we've talked about, but. Mm. They definitely can, like, reach, like, a broader audience, I think. Whereas, like, four of these five movies, I feel, are more, like, like niche, you know. Like, they're very firmly planted in the realm of, like, horror. Yeah. In, like, the the narrow sense of, like, you know, like someone who really is, like, an aficionado of the genre. Whereas I think there's one that maybe, like, other people could appreciate, you know. Yeah. Okay, you ready to get started, then? Yep. Okay, before we get started, I just wanted to... Let everybody know where they can go ahead and get a hold of the podcast. I know we've had a lot of new listeners. I don't know where people are listening or how they're listening uh, completely. I, I have some idea. But I just want to let you know that uh, you can follow us on Google Podcast, on Google Play, Apple Podcast, iTunes, Stitcher. We just recently, this past uh, week, added Spotify that you can listen to the show now if you belong to Spotify. And then pretty much any podcatcher that you use. Uh the, the podcast will show up. So um, I want to just quickly thank, because we for always forget to do until the end of the show, I want to thank all of our new listeners um, and let you know that if you have any suggestions for us in terms of list ideas, please feel free to contact us. You can contact us through our Facebook page or, uh, you know, a lot of the podcatchers or Podbean, which is our hosting company, you can comment through there and leave us comments or suggestions for ideas. You can also contact us at two guys five movies at gmail.com. That's the number two and five, two guys five movies at gmail.com with any of those suggestions. And we would love to have any feedback that you uh, want to give us whatsoever. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. So, number five on top five B horror movies of 1982 is the movie Pieces, directed by J.P. Simon, starring Christopher George, Linda Day George, and Edmund Perdome. It has a 46% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 51% from audiences. 100% in my heart. (laughs) Did you want to go ahead and let us know a little bit about what this movie is about and what exactly you like about it so much? Um, So first of all, I'd like to point out that you forgot to mention the most important actor in this movie, which is Ian Sarah. Um, who plays, I guess, quote, kind of the hero, uh, Kendall. Um, only in two movies I've ever seen, but I love his performance in both. Uh, pieces. What is, what is the other movie? Pod People. Okay. It's parodied by Mystery Science Theater 3000. Okay. Um, he's the lead singer of the band, the It Stinks guy. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. 
Only for Mystery Science Theater. Right. Yeah. Oh, there's no reason you'd ever watch okay. it otherwise. Oh. Um, so the film is opened by this flashback sequence of this little boy assembling a new jigsaw puzzle and his like fanatically religious mother bursting in and chastising him and beating him and, you know, throwing the puzzle away and then murders his mother with a hatchet, um, dismembers her and then hides in a closet and it's implied that the police like just think that he kind of witnessed it, not that he was the perpetrator. Um, cuts to like 25 years or like years in the future. No, more than 25, like 30 years in the future. And um, there's a point of view killer like assembling like the bloody jigsaw puzzle. Um, so it takes place on the college campus. There's a number of murders where attractive young women have various body parts removed from them. Um, Ian Sarah plays Kendall, who's the Don Juan of the campus somehow. Um, who's sort of like conscripted by the police along with like a world renowned tennis star to kind of like bait and trap this killer. Um, and one of the most ridiculous plot points like in any movie ever. Um, there's a couple of red herrings. The guy that plays Bluto in the Popeye movie is a suspect at one point. Um, cause he's menacing and carries a chainsaw, which is like one of the things that dismembers people. Um, eventually the killer is found out to be the Dean of the university. Who's kind of like pushing for the investigation of these things. Um, he's, he's killed, you know, they, whatever. Um, and then one of the greatest moments, I think, in film, like in cinematic history. Um, so the Dean has been assembling this perfect woman out of the body parts of these different women that he's killed. Um, in the same way that he was like assembling the jigsaw puzzle because he was the young boy from like the flashback sequence. And for some inexplicable reason, the corpse of the like jigsaw woman comes to life and crushes Kendall's balls like, through his pants. Like, it makes no sense whatsoever, but... Mm. Um... I don't know, it's pretty shocking, I guess. Yeah. Um... Not a great movie. Uh... In terms of, like, direction, acting, um... The way the scenes are filmed. Like, there's a really... Almost, like, nonsensical scene where, like, a asian college student like has to ninja fight the yes um the undercover tennis player Mm -hmm. um who while is a world-renowned tennis player no one recognizes because she comes on there as like the new tennis instructor um kendall uh is the least convincing don juan ever like there's nothing about him that would make you think that women so the first time you're introduced to kendall it's actually a really funny scene um there's this beautiful blonde girl in the library studying and it pans over and you see this like, I don't know, like nerdy dude with glasses and like a Afro like studying. And the first time I saw this movie, I was like, Oh, well this kid is like going to be like a red herring as a killer because he's like, obviously the nerd in this movie. And the beautiful blonde girl looks up and basically is like, Hey, you want to go to the like pool and fuck? And it's like, oh my God, like this guy is the hero of this movie. Like this guy is the, like the dashing male lead. And then like everyone refers to how like popular he is with the ladies and he knows everyone on campus. And there's this recurring character that's like, 
Oh yeah, like he wears like Halloween masks and he's really like manic and he's always like, Kendall, you're so you're so wonderful. You're such a Don Juan. It's just the movie makes no sense. The fact that Kendall gets like conscripted by the police to join their investigation. Um, there's a great fucking great character who's like a like a poor man's Leslie Nielsen that plays like the other de- there's like a head detective and then this other detective. Mm-hmm. And the set, the Leslie Nielsen detective is um not not Leslie Nielsen, just a guy that's like, I don't know, I don't know why I even call him that. He's like got because he's got white hair, I guess. Um, realizes how like how integral Kendall can be to this investigation. He gives him a gun and he's like, "Come with us, we need you." Like, and it's like this like twenty something year old college kid who's not even that bright, who's all of a sudden like a key key component of the police force. Um, I'm going to be honest. It's so absurd that at times I had to rewind because I felt like I was missing something mm, mm. and I wasn't whatsoever. You're not. Yeah. Just, it's just illogical. A lot of times, um, the leaps, I thought Kendall was under, like at some point I thought, that Kendall might have been undercover and I just missed it somehow. No, no, no. And no, and I went just, back and it's like, no. He's, he's just, just big man on campus. Right. right. This campus that, like, is literally comprised of, like, 15 buxom women, like, a couple of dudes and some professors. All of which are, are like, m- most of the characters in the movie are, are red herrings. Like, they really try their best to never let you suspect that the Dean is the killer, even though I think, mm-hmm. like, Pretty early on, you can kind of suspect that it's it's mm-hmm. probably the Dean. Like, honestly, once I realized that Kendall was a hero, I was like, yeah, it's got to be, like, that guy. Um, but just, I don't know. Like, I, I think it's a really fun movie. No, go ahead. Okay, so so I was just going to, just to clarify, the, the acting is bad. Right. The direction is bad. Terrible. It's an illogical story. Right. It's not so, necessarily like like the the cinematography isn't even like that great. It's low quality, right? So so go ahead, like. So what is so it despite, that makes this movie make this list? So despite all of those flaws, mm-hmm. it is incredibly fun to watch. Like, it makes me laugh every single time I watch it, and I I think the deaths are actually pretty well done. Like that's the one thing it has going for it is I think that. There's like like the girl that gets killed. Um, I can't remember what she is in the movie. Like she might be a tennis player or something. Um, the girl that gets killed in the bathroom, like that's a pretty tense scene. And for all of its flaws, like when these women are being stalked and killed, it does a pretty good job of like that those small moments. It's just like the reason they're being stalked and killed is ridiculous. Like it's a stupid idea, honestly. It's not even a stupid idea. Like in a different director's hands. I think it could have been, like, tense and psychologically, like, you know, at least interesting. But it's just so... I don't I don't know why the director was so in love with Ian Sarah, where they thought, like, this is the leading man. Like, this is the dude, you know, that's going to, like... Like, guys are going to be like, I want to be that guy. And women are going to be like, I want to be with that guy. I don't think anybody's thinking that. Like, he's not even that charming. Like, his lines are really bad and... There's the one time where, like, he thinks he's going to have sex with the tennis instructor, like, the undercover tennis star, and they go to her room, and she's like, not tonight, Kendall, but definitely another night, or something like that. And you're like, what? Like, that that's that, that's not happening. Like, that doesn't even make any sense, but it's funny. 
Um, and the dude that plays Bluto, um, I can't remember the actor's name, but he's just like, like puffing his cheeks and huffing and popping his eyes out and like stroking his chainsaw lovingly. And it's like the most obvious red herring, but you know, I, I really think that, that the director, I think he thought he was making like a good movie. I think he thought that he was making something. It's like you watch a Yui Bowl movie. And those movies are awful. Like, some of the worst movies I've ever seen. Especially that got, like, wide theatrical release. But, like, that dude truly believes that he's making good movies. And I think this guy's the same. I think he thought, like, that he was making this fantastic, you know, almost, like, psycho-esque, like, psychological study. And none of it works. And then not working at all. Like, it's just, it's, it's amazing to watch. It's... I don't know. I, I, I've watched it maybe four times in my life and I've had fun watching it every time. <coughs> More so after seeing pod people and realizing that that's who that guy was that like, it almost elevates it to like, like that level of like absurdist comedy. And maybe like, that's the point. Like, I don't know. Like maybe it was, it is supposed to be funny. Maybe it is a parody, but it, I don't think it knows that. And I definitely don't think it sells itself as a parody. And I think that makes it even funnier. So if you're not going to watch this movie, you really should Google Ian Sarah and his name is spelled like Michael Sarah, but with an S rather than a C. Is uh, that right? I thought it was with an S for a C. No. <clears throat> no. Um, it's S-E-R-A. So. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, just to, so you understand the hero of this movie right. is supposed to be like a sexual magnet. Right. He's like um, this Bon Vermont who's like super smart and really charming. And he's none of these things. And the funny thing is in pod people, he's cast exactly the same way. Like he's exactly the same character, except he's the lead singer of a band and he is the least charismatic I mean, I, I think he's only in, like, three movies or something. Like, I, I looked at his, his MDiv after I watched this this time. Um, and praise God for the internet. Because, like, I wouldn't have been able to do that at any point. I would have had to, like, try and find, like, Ian Sarah movies somehow. Um, but just so over-the-top bad that he's almost, like, transcendently good. Like, it's 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 funny. It's really funny. And there's so many scenes that, like... I love getting high and fucking on a waterbed, like, for no reason. I'm going to be honest, it's the one thing that made me laugh. Just so she can get killed on a waterbed. Right. Like, just setting up, like, somehow, like, you're supposed to remember 30 minutes later, oh, it's her. Like, oh, what irony. Right. But no irony, it's just dumb. Yeah, because the the, the line itself was so ridiculous. Just for a setup to a kill. It's... The way that it's, it's like, hey, what would that somebody actually thought like, oh, we should kill someone on a waterbed, and they like basically wrote <laughs> right. wrote wrote the movie to lead to these scenes of the these specific kills. Right, right. It's 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 amazing, and <laughs> it's like we 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 were watching some television show at one point that involved like teenagers, and I remember like us talking about how it was written. By someone who's never heard a teenager speak. I can't remember what it was. We were talking about like how terrible the dialogue was because it was obvious that it was somebody that didn't know how like young people actually talked. 
and they were just trying to like force words into hmm. like these people's mouths. I wish I could remember, but like this is the same thing. This is like this yeah. the person that wrote this movie has no idea. And I, I don't even think they know how humans talk. Like, I don't think they know, like, what dialogue sounds like in the right. real world. And yet, I, I don't know. It's it's just, that lets it rise above, like, to me, the level of just disposable schluck. Like, there's plenty of movies from this time period that have very similar plots. And there's yeah. Torso, which is similar. There's a bunch of, like, Giallo movies, actually, from around this time. And this is a Spanish movie, so, you know, it has kind of, like, the same, like, soul to it. Um, that are very similar, like with the point of view that you don't know who the killer is. The killer's like psychosexually obsessed with like his mother or something. Like tons of movies that follow that. And some of them are actually really good. This is not a good movie. But just I don't know, it's just so uniquely bad that it to me it, it just makes it like perfect to watch. Okay, I'm not gonna shit on your your fun. Like I, I just it's just not as right. I'm. I just don't have as much fun watching it as you do. Right. <clears throat> there, so. there's certainly some ridiculous things in here that are kind of laughable to me, and there's you know things I thought that's funny, not because it was supposed to be funny, but because it's absurd right. and stupid and sure. right. Um, <clears throat> and there's not even really any criticism to like right. mention in this, this because well, it's be, no. David Nuzair from Real Film reviews almost all of the movies that are covered on this list. So I'll give a shout out to this guy because he and he reviews a lot. Like there's a lot of reviews of his up, but he reviews a lot of these. And it's usually like 50-50 in terms of whether he agrees with you. And he did shit on this movie. But um, at the same time, you've acknowledged all of the things that he says are bad. So right. it's not really worth going into. Um. Well, he does also mention the ending being. Um, he says that it <laughs> says it doesn't even make any sense because it wants us to believe that the main character wasn't just crazy, but also a mad scientist, right? <laughs> or that there's some like all of a sudden some supernatural element right. that's inhabited yeah. that's never been explained. And again, like I think it's just because. I think they were like, man, we got to have a twist ending. Like, we got to shock people as they're leaving the theater so they remember it. And it's like, what do we do? And that's the thing you choose. And it makes no sense. But it's like, it's so, like, graphically weird, too. It's it's like it's like there's, like, a paint canister in it. Because it doesn't look like blood. It just right. looks like paint oozing out when they grab his crotch. And I guess it's supposed to be, like, maybe, like, the director's, like, you know, making a statement about, like, the male Lothario, like, betting all these women and this is his punishment or whatever. But you've made the man your hero your right. entire movie. So. And then to punish him like that, it's just, it again, like, I think this guy thought I'm making something really great without any idea. I will say, though, that I like that twist ending better than the movie from last month, I think. Mother's Day? Yes. Yeah. Mother's Day is certainly one of the worst twist endings I've ever seen in my entire life. I love life. that ending. It's so bad. Right. It's, it's like it's, Teen Wolf jumping out of yeah, it's like... it's amazing. Yeah. Teen Wolf without an ear. Right. So that way you know... Right. You know, right. As you, as if you could tell from the grainy... Okay. Right. Oh my God, it's so bad. <laughs> Pieces, is, Pieces is a bad movie. Yeah. It's the only movie on this list that I will say is objectively a bad movie. Because I think that every other movie has something to like, you know, to, to speak to its credit. But man, is it fun. Like, I just yeah. love it. And it, it, it took the place of other movies that are probably more worthy of being on, like, a top list. Yeah. But in my heart, they're not there. Like, this is 
I mean, and you, you like it so much. Like people that like it, they all of them like it for the exact same reason that you right, said. Nobody, nobody thinks this is a good movie in the sense of like what you're saying objectively. Right. I mean, it seriously but is like you took, I think it would be impossible to argue that you but. you took an alien and showed them like scenes from movies without any context. <laughs> And then gave them the wrong context and were like, all right, now make a movie. And the alien was like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And this is what they came up with. And that alien thought that they succeeded, but man, did they not. Yeah. I I mean, I have to assume J.P. Simon is not the person's real name that directed this movie. I think it is. Really? I think so. Okay. I don't even know what the guy had done, but... um, They probably should have, like researched it a little yeah i i'll be honest i didn't (laughs) i didn't really i think it's simone actually oh it it is it's a while juan oh okay it is juan piquer simone god what else is this guy um so oh he did pod people which hence why oh so he's like obsessed with ian sarah right he did slugs slugs is actually a movie that might make a list someday i like slugs did a movie called cthulhu mansion i've never seen um, I do not like the look of this J J P Simon Simone. Simone. Yeah, I do not like that. <clears throat> if um, you if you like, if you can just let yourself go and watch like a yeah. bad horror movie and not overly judge it or not like take yourself take it too seriously, I think you can really enjoy pieces. And if you can't, like that's cool too. Like it's yeah. just not for you, but it's definitely fun and it's something that I really enjoy watching every few years. Yeah. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to another bad movie. Um, so number four is this is not a bad movie. Basket Case, directed by Frank Henenlotter, starring Keith Van Hentenrich, Sean McGabe, and Terry Susan Smith, has a seventy four percent from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a fifty three percent from audiences. That's that's weird. I would really think it'd be upside down from that, but that's yeah. funny. So, um, explain to us this movie. What it's about and what its good qualities are. Uh, so Dwayne Bradley is a guy who's come to New York, like obviously from some, like he's like a small town guy. Always a small town guy. Um, carrying a basket with him, gets a room in like a cheap, um, like flea bag motel. Uh, it's revealed that what's in his basket is his conjoined twin, <clears throat> conjoined deformed twin, Belial. Um, who was separated from them at birth. Um, they both want to find the doctors that performed the surgery separating them to get their revenge. Um, so the doctors are all in New York, hence why they're in New York. Uh, while they're there, Dwayne like falls for a receptionist at a doctor's office, um, who Belial attempts to rape and can't rape and um, flies into a rage and him and Dwayne end up falling from the window of an of their apartment and that's pretty much the entire movie yeah <clears throat> uh belial is simultaneously i think one of the most inventive and most ridiculous looking horror creatures um in film from this time like for a for a movie that eventually came went on to become a franchise um like just a really like it really grotesque an incredibly fake, but also really kind of like upsetting thing, like to look at Bilal because he's just kind of a lump of flesh with like tendrils and a face. Mm-hmm. 
and it's really like off-putting to see him. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole movie itself, honestly, is very dirty. Uh, it's very small and cramped. Um, it it makes me feel claustrophobic when I watch it because every space, especially the apartment complex. Yeah, because every mm-hmm. space feels like there's just not enough space in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the people seem really unclean. Um, it definitely, I think, reflects it. In a weird way, it reminds me of how you feel watching Midnight Cowboy. Like, watching some of those scenes in Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, I can see that. Um, in terms of, like, the streets of New York and the, the tenement houses and the people in New York. Um, but whereas Midnight Cowboy, like, obviously has, like, a lot of artistry to it. Like, this is very much a quickie horror movie. And it feels like a quickie horror movie. But at the same time, I think there's a real... I think... I, I think Henelotter has like a lot of affection for the genre and really liked the story he was telling. I, I think that he's really, cause Belial is a, like a loathsome thing. Like he really is. It's, it's a good Jekyll and Hyde style movie mm-hmm. in the sense that Dwayne is friendly and unassuming and kind and just like a decent, like all American guy but has this thing that's a part of him that he carries with him in a basket. <clears throat> Which I think, you know, Henelotter probably was trying to, like, make some sort of, like, statement about, you know, like, whatever, the shadow self that people carry. <clears throat> While still, like, you know, to, like, what, what, what I said when you asked me, do I see anything changing? Like, I think that's, like, a minor change where the movie's actually about something. Yes. But he's so afraid of making it too much about something that it's just hidden behind this grotesque idea. Um, I, again, like it's it's a very cheap prosthetic Belial. Like you can tell it's just a puppet. There's no, like it is 100% practical effect. And even at this point, like what else would it be? Um, but even like, like Rick Baker and Tom Savini were making effects at this point that were in low-budget horror movies that were incredibly believable mm-hmm. and, you know, disturbing. Um, and this is not that. Like, this is disturbing, but it's not believable. But, I like, there's a charm to that, I think. And I really like... I like the idea that he carries him with him in a basket, and I like the the fact that it's almost like his... Um, like, his id, almost, that he's carrying with him because he's so, like... He lacks, like, really all, like, negative characteristics aside from the fact that he's, you know, trying to murder these people. But he's doing it out of love for his brother. Like, mm-hmm. he can't help but love this vile, deformed creature that he carries with him. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just think it's... I think it's an important movie in terms of, like, horror movies in the 80s. Um, number one, because it did spawn, like, a series. And number two, because it was... It's 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 pretty well known. I think it's a pretty popular movie mm-hmm. um, among like horror aficionados, which is why I'm surprised that like critically it's rated so much higher than audience wise. Because I would feel that it should be the opposite of that. Um, and I think that I I, I think Henelotter actually like cares about the movie he's making, um, even though it doesn't come off as the best. You know, like it's definitely like a low budget movie. But I think there's also some appeal to that. There's like almost like a like a DIY punk aesthetic to the entire like affair where you really feel like in the same way that you like you say how dirty you feel watching some of John Waters movies from like the 70s. 
I think it's the same feeling you get from this, and I think it's got the in same... In some ways, yes. The same intent. And obviously, like, Waters is more high-minded, even though, like, he still is, like, in the gutter in a lot of ways. Like, Waters is trying to say more than Henelotter, but I don't think it changes the I, overall I, Although I would say I think this is a higher quality than a lot of Waters stuff than from the 70s. Right, but also a decade later. Sure. So, sure. I mean, it's hard. It's like apples yeah. and oranges. Um... It isn't, but it's it's it, it's a different era in a lot of ways. This film's got a lot of heart, like the the making of it, right? Has a lot of heart to it, and I'll give it that. I mean, I think it's goofy in a lot of ways. I think it's amateur amateurish at a lot of times. Um, some things I think are just stupid in it, like some scenes. But I still found it, I still found it engaging as I was watching it because, like you said, it had a story. And it had a character. Now, character development, whatever, but not a lot of it there, I don't think. But it has a story, and it tells you that story. And if I use my imagination just enough, and I didn't have to use it a lot, but if I use my imagination, I could create enough of a characterization from the story to actually feel for this guy. For Dwight. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. I, I think that that actor does a fine job. He does. I, I, no, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't have a problem with a lot of the performances in it. The cop is really bad. I don't yeah. know if you remember him. And, and even the way they film that scene is one of the worst things that he films in that movie. It goes from, like, you know, being at least fine, okay, whatever, into, like, student film. Right. When the te- detective approaches him about getting into the apartment, it's just, it's I don't know what happened. Like I don't know if they had to go reshoot or whatever. Something very weird happened in that scene because suddenly like everything's off about it. Like the lighting is off, the acting seems off, the way they film it is off, yeah. and it's it's very weird. But um, but yeah, overall, it was like at least it had a story. And I think that's one of the things that I'm finding in some of these movies, rewatching them again, like Friday the 13th and those kind of things. Really, when it comes down to it, there is no story to them. So I can't be actively engaged in the movie, but at least in this, I paid attention to it. I was watching it, and I wasn't bored necessarily watching it. And I do think, you, like you said, the the tenement house, right. like the characters that are in it, like it gives it a certain... It gives it that stereotypical feel of like '80s New York that you get through film right. a lot of times, but it just heightens it to the point where it feels grimy and dirty. And I think it's very effective in portraying that. And I, yeah. I, I also think, in some ways, like even though, and I was very grossed out by Belial, so. right? Um, which is interesting because again, like it's a lot of puppetry. Um, it's some stop motion animation there. Um, that's it's it's almost like in a weird way like a dark love letter to like the underbelly of new york from him um i mean this is something that was shown in like this is like a drive-in movie this is you know like a midnight movie that it would have been at the time probably something where it just kind of like caught you off guard like where you just saw it i mean this isn't something that you went to see on like a saturday matinee or whatever you know what i mean so and I, I think there's, I don't know anything about, like, the editing of this film, like, the post-production. I mean, like, there's some really, like, it's not necessarily shot on, like, the highest quality of film. 
And to your point, there are things where, like, you can feel like maybe... <clears throat> maybe they just had to make do with what they had because they lost, like, segments of film or maybe... Like, they would run out and they wouldn't have any choice but to use, like, some, like, inferior shot. But, like, overall, like, again, like, I, I agree with you. I think it has a lot of heart. And I think you can see that, like, he's genuinely invested in the thing that he's filming. And to me, that's... Especially in a horror movie, like, that means a lot. Because a lot of, like, at from this point on, <clears throat> you've got kind of, like, two schools of thought in the horror industry. Which is that, you know, I'm trying to make something that stands out and something that's different... Or I'm going to try and crank out something as fast as possible that I can make a small profit on and show for 10 years, right. you know, in some, like, grindhouse yeah. in, like, a city. So, I definitely think that while it has, like, some of the aesthetic of, like, that grindhouse fair, I think it definitely has also enough staying power, <clears throat> you know, from having, like, a pretty unique antagonist and kind of, like, a... Sort of an interesting twist on, like, a classic idea. Um, I think most people that are horror fans have affection for Basket Case or have seen it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I most of my... Most of the people that we know that like horror films um, definitely like Basket Case. And... Well, Felix Vasquez from Cinema Craze did not. And I want to warn you, because Felix Vasquez is the guy that triggered you, like, a month ago and made you is start cussing. Is this the Toad guy? Yes. Like a toad in the corner? Yes. Uh-huh. All right, this motherfucker. Let's hear it. So, he says, Basket Case can barely muster up any interesting characters and tries at every turn to introduce supporting characters who offer nothing to the story. Dwayne Bradley is a bland character and his subplot involving his romance with an office secretary is abrupt and poorly crafted. Basket Case really isn't a film I intended to take with a stern dramatic element, but even as a D-grade comedy, it fails horribly. Even with Belial mauling people to death and running around with no legs, Frank Henlotter's film is tedious and almost unwatchable. The film has a unique energy to it, which may sum up why it's considered a classic, but for me, it's a film I won't revisit anytime soon. A downright unwatchable horror comedy with terrible performances and amateur production values. It is a waste of time and a film that fails to build a remotely interesting horror villain. I don't know that I can even get angry at that because I just feel like it's just not your thing man you know like stop watching these movies like why why is someone who hates the genre so much like reviewing films on the genre like he obviously doesn't have any affection for that I wonder Mm -hmm. how old this dude is or like when he grew up because like I I you know I I watch a lot of movies with my son, mm-hmm. and I can definitely tell when he's tuned out of a movie, and we, we watched this together, and mm-hmm. he stopped watching after, like, probably, like, 12 minutes, like, just, like, went to, like, his iPhone or whatever. Uh-huh. But, you know, when you grew up in an era where you went to the video store and you were able to rent, like, one or two movies, and that's all you had, you didn't stop, you know what I mean? Like, you watched them, and sometimes you watched them multiple times because you had them for a few days. And what else were you going to do? You know, like, like that was your life as like a kid in the 80s, you know, in the late 80s. And you found things in those movies. I think there was a connection between you and your grainy TV and this like VHS tape with like rewind lines and, you know, like splices and stuff. I mean, there's 
I think I think if you're coming into the some of these movies not to get off topic, but you're right about that. The rewind lines gave it some sort of feeling of like a communal aspect. Right. Like this is something that has been watched by right. other people where you don't get that with anything sure. today. Like everything is just so like immediate and clean that right i mean it was an artifact of someone else's experience with that movie yeah the funniest thing was anytime there's nudity in a movie like there's always rewind lines like you can tell (laughs) that some dude was like like really into that scene for at least like 30 seconds Uh at one point because like i remember we were watching there's an erica laniac horror movie like later in the late 80s early 90s about witches i can't remember what it's called um but she's naked at one point and like the hardest rewind lines I've ever seen in a movie. Like, legitimate, like, scratches across the center of, like, the screen when Uh you're watching it. From, like, so many people just, like, I guess, like, remote in one hand and something in the other and, like, revisiting this Erica Laniac scene over and over. Um, I don't know, like, yeah, to your point, like, when, when you have the ability to cue anything up and just watch it, and it's, like, a digital transfer through some streaming service or... Like a DVD or a Blu-ray. I mean, you, you kind of lose some of that. I don't know. Like yeah. some of the charm of like finding these things on your own and yeah. sort of experiencing them and making them like your own because you had to almost. Yeah. And maybe maybe it's not even possible for people to appreciate it as much. And yeah. The only thing I take, uh, I mean, I get where he's coming from. It's like, it's like, I don't know how far I am away from how he feels. I think I'm further away from how he f- I'm closer to how you feel or can respect how you feel much more than I can what he's doing in this review. But I I think it's the Belial monster is a pretty effective villain. Sure. I mean, it's gross. I mean, it makes you feel, it made me feel physically ill it's at times. It's uncomfortable to look at. Yeah. It's uncomfortable to look at. It's not good. It's like, yeah. it's not a good creature. I mean, it ruins this guy's life. And all like the the the, 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 the death of the office secretary at the end is one of the more is one of the grossest things I've seen so far out of rewatching these horror movies from the eighties. Like it's certainly one of the things that made me feel the most uncomfortable sitting there watching it. Sharon or whatever. Yeah, yeah. like it's like and, and it's there for shock value, right, I think. Of course, but it it really like is just gross. And and I thought well, that was effective. It yeah. maybe it's like it made me want to see him finally. Kill this get his creature, come, yeah, get his right, yeah. Uh-huh. but he has to kill himself too in the end. Like, sure, that's how. Yeah, right. Like that's right, and I think that's that's Henlotter's again. Like I think it really is like a Jekyll and Hyde yeah. <clears throat> story at heart because he is like Belial is part of Dwayne. You know, like they're one and the same, and Belial says that all the time. Like you know that I'm I should be a part of you, um or whatever. Like there's several lines to that effect, but. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, reviews like that, I just... It's annoying, but I just I just don't get, like... I mean, there, I, there's nothing there that you couldn't imagine. I, right. But, so, I just figured I had to give you something, especially since we skipped yeah, I mean, the first fuck movie. Yeah, guy. Like, he, he needs to stop watching horror movies. <laughs> um, I do think that the story was done better in that X-Files episode. Humbug. Oh, right. Humbug is really good. Yeah. Yeah. The circus episode. Right. Which... Basically steals the story to some degree, and sure, I mean X Files like stole from so many horror sure, movies yeah. for their monster episode, right, yeah. which is fine because yeah. it was always an interesting mm-hmm. spin on it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, I really Basket love Case it. Two. Does this movie better? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> right, right. when when he has a bigger budget and yeah. like it, he does it better. But mm. this is a guy with like very little budget yeah. that's shooting on like you know sixteen millimeter film sure. in New York City, yeah. almost like cinema verite style at points. So, you know, it's yeah. it's definitely a labor of love, and I think it really like comes through. And I think yeah. that that heart. I mean, maybe that's just like my emotional connection to film anyway, because I'm so much. <clears throat> like I, I'm as much invested in like the experience and the moment as I am the quality mm. that like, maybe that's why I can look at this and like, yeah. have like a lot of affection for it. Whereas maybe yeah. fucking totally. And I don't, and I don't have enough, any kind of experience with this movie. Yeah. I didn't see it until I'm probably actually, the early nineties. And then like, I think one time I, I didn't even see the whole thing. Right. I'm really surprised. Like yeah. to me, this, was I think like, Wesley showed it to me and I only think I ended up watching all of it. Like, this was one of those VHS covers that I think grabbed you right away because it's like him peeking out from the basket and like oh the, I remember the video the cover very red, well yeah. like blood splatter red letters of basket mm-hmm. case and yeah the Rex Reed quote like this is the sickest movie ever made right. like there was a lot of shit that you know oh Rex Reed right that like pulled you in that's actually like one of the few like anecdotes about this movie that I know just from reading about horror movies like my whole life is that. Frank Hemelotter, like, approached Rex Reed on the street and said, hey, what do you think of Basket Case? As he was, as Rex Reed was leaving a movie theater, and that was Rex Reed's response to him, and they used it as the tagline for the movie, and Rex Reed got super pissed that, like, they were, like, like quoting him, um, but eventually, like, relented and allowed him to use it, but it's just right. really funny that, yeah. like, and I, I like that, like, I like that guerrilla style of, you know, like... Yeah. This is his movie, and he was doing right. anything he can to promote it. And sure. I don't know. <clears throat> okay. Um, let's go ahead and move on to number three. Number three on the list, also well-known, Slumber Party Massacre, directed by Amy Holden, starring Michelle Michaels, Robin Still, Michael uh, Valela. Um, it is a 36% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, 45% from audiences, which Man, definitely... Man, these are some low-ass scores. Which is definitely the lowest out of this list, but... <clears throat> that... Okay, so that is incredibly surprising to me, that it's yeah. not higher with audiences. Mm. I mean, I watch these movies in a vacuum for the most part. Like, who sure. am I going to talk to these movies about? Sure. But I fucking love this movie. Like, this yeah. is one of my favorite movies from my... I mean, I'm surprised by the score, and I'll tell you why, is that I thought this movie was so much better than those Friday the 13th movies. Right. Like, so much better. Right. This movie is Like, not even even from, like, the subversion standpoint that the director, like, is able to force in some, just from the slasher aspect of it and from the filmmaking process. Yeah, it's got some some clever and, like, gross deaths. And the suspense is done in a good way. It actually, to me, it's more of a spiritual successor to Halloween than it mm. is to yeah. Friday the 13th. Sure. Um, and maybe that's the ur- like the suburban setting of it as right. opposed to the rural setting of the Friday the 13th movies. But, yeah. like, especially the stuff when... Um, so, all right. So right, let's yeah. talk about... I jumped in ahead too quick. Go ahead and right, just you got me all explain the uh, plot of this. Um, so, a group of young girls are going to have a slumber party. Uh, Michelle Michaels plays... Trish. They're all 18, though. Well, right. That's why you can see them naked. Right. Um, they, they made sure to mention that they're all eighteen, right? Well, because they didn't want to get like I understand you know, prosecuted. That's, that was my um. So while at school and they're like in the shower talking about the slumber party and they're going to invite the nerdy new girl, um, 
one of them gets murdered by a guy who previously murdered a telephone repair lady. Um, they have the slumber party. The boys crash it because that's what they do. Uh, they're systematically picked off one by one by the quote unquote driller killer. Um, who's this nondescript, like flat top sporting like dude in a denim jacket. Um, who's kind of unkillable, I guess, but not really. Um, over the, like, they realize that they're being stalked, you know, there's some tense moments in the house. It's a very small movie in the sense that once they get to the house, it doesn't really take place anywhere else. It takes place, like, between, like, three houses, basically, but all within the same, like, the general shared yard space. Um, there's really not much more to say. I mean, it really is, like, if you just talk about it plot-wise, it really is just a traditional stalker slasher horror movie and it really is about like these nubile sex crazed drug abusing teen not drug abusing drug using teens being murdered by a psychopath but the way it's done um there's a lot of female empowerment in it which again is like odd for this time and something that always sticks out to me you know when like a woman is the protagonist um there's some pretty frank, like, not not really conversation, but the way that it's set up, like, it's a pretty honest look at teen sexuality, and then it's honestly not that bad, you know, to, like, admit that teens have sex and drink beer and do drugs, and that it doesn't make them terrible people, because none of them are really, like, awful human beings, you know, like, one of the things that marks the Friday the 13th series, especially after the second one, like, throughout the the rest of, like, the series, is that they're, they're pretty unlikable people that are getting murdered. Like, they kind of make you root for Jason through those movies because they don't really invest a lot in the characters and you don't like the characters. And I, I like the characters in Slumber Party Massacre. Like, I think mm-hmm. they're all pretty likable people. Sure. I think they're pretty genuinely, you know, like, they're friends like they feel like a group of friends and they feel like people that would want to hang out and they don't feel like i mean not not that there's a huge amount of character that's invested in them but like the nerdy sister with her younger sister like i think they do a good job of building like a familial bond between the two of them and like you really kind of like care about those two characters and you sort of care about um trish you know and her affection for her friends and there's the one friend that's obviously, like, really, like, the most sex-crazed, and, but mm-hmm. she's in love with her boyfriend. It's not like she's, right. like, the, like, typical, like, you know, quote-unquote, like, horror character that's just out having sex with everybody and gets killed. <clears throat> and she's maybe, like, a little, like, catty and mean, but she's not a bad person. Right. I and mean, she even has some good lines. And I think it's, like, I mean, at this point in time, you know, and we've talked about some of these movies, like, this, the stalker-killer movie... The slasher movie is just omnipresent in horror at this time. And you you find nothing out about why this guy is doing this stuff. Like, there's no... Like, it's not like... They don't, like, like, mythologize the killer, which they do in, like, almost every horror movie, is they make... They almost make you more interested in the killer as a character than anybody else. And they remove character from the victim so that you're almost more invested in the killer 
in order to make the killer more interesting. And it's the opposite here, where they invest most of the characterization, sometimes for pretty extended periods of, like, nobody dying, Mm -hmm. just to build character in these people. Um, And the killer really is just kind of like a set piece. You know, he's got his phallic, like, drill. Sure. So it's very obviously, you know, this is like, I don't know, it's almost like there's, like, the rape subtext to it, that he's, like, in there, like, murdering them with his giant like phallus basically or whatever right i mean and then it's like you know it's obvious at the end of the movie when she like snaps the drill bit right exactly breaks it it's like you know that there's yeah there's that symbolism that's going on there i mean and that's i think it's a comedic subversion of right and it's a little heavy-handed too but i mean i think it has to be because like why do you have subtext when you're going for like grand guignol or whatever right um but all like all that being said, it's, there's a lot a lot more interesting ideas and performances, and it's a very competently shot movie. It looks pretty good. Um, it does a good job filming in the dark. It does a good job like presenting the house as like this oasis, you know, of like you're safe here, and then like sort of subverting that by letting him like into the house and. It's got some good, like, gross-out deaths. I mean, the the prosthetic work and the, like, practical effects are, are, are well done. And honestly, like, again, like, to my point with Basket Case, like, I think you can see that it was, like, a labor of love. You know, like, it, there's genuine heart that went into the making of this movie. Like, which is really surprising why it's so... I mean, critically, like, I don't ever expect any of these movies. You, uh, this is gonna sound, maybe, this might sound stupid, but do you think it's just the title? Makes makes you think it's trashier and schlockier than what it might actually be. Well, the title in the VHS box cover. I mean, sure, the right. box well, well, cover again, is maybe that's yeah. the drill right. dangling between the dude's like spread legs, that's, which is another funny shot. Right. I and thought then in a the bunch movie. of like yeah. um, underwear clad women like sure. towering, towering yeah. Which you know, the hundred percent like yeah. What a full disclosure. Why I rented the movie the first time. <laughs> um, right. There's some amazing nudity in this movie for, like, a, you know, 10, 10 to 12-year-old boy. Right. But, like, I've watched this movie, seriously, like, I've seen this movie maybe, like, eight or nine times in my yeah. life. I've owned this movie in some form for probably, shit, 25 years, 26 mm-hmm. years. I mean, I owned this on VHS when I was, like, 17 years old. And I've had it on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, I have it now. Um, I have a lot of affection for this movie and like, I think it really is like a well done tongue in cheek parody of a genre that doesn't fall into mockery. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's, it's, it's a unique perspective on a genre that doesn't do like what the scary movie movies do, which is like completely undercut the like the value of the genre at all like it's still like it follows the tropes and it follows the beats but it does them in a way that i think is just more interesting honestly and again i I think i think that's because and i really just thought of this um like while i was talking but i really think it's because instead of making the killer your central focus it makes the victims the central focus and does enough and again this isn't like some great like oscar worthy script or performances but they're believable human beings like you believe that these could be like real people i think 
Well, yes, I, I agree. And I think they're likable enough. And I think that's what's important. Right. Is you have to make people care about those characters if you're going to put them in perilous, deadly situations. You always have to make people care about the characters that are being put in those situations. What what's the damn movie from the mid two thousands that I always talk about hating, like because they make the characters so unlikable? In the they spend the first half of oh, the Wolf movie Creek. Wolf Creek, right? And I find those characters so unlikable by the point <clears throat> those things happen to them that I don't really care right. quite as much that they're being tortured. And which I mean, my argument to you was that that's the point, but right. But then it, yeah, well yeah. We'll never talk about... Well, we might. I'll get you someday. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, but I mean, I find that in a lot of movies. It's like, you know, you would make the same argument with um, the Tarantino grindhouse. Um, oh, right. Yeah, um, Death Proof. Death Proof. Yeah. Is that you think those characters, like, you know, where it's like, I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to make the first set of characters so unlikable that when they die, you don't care... But he's trying to make those second set of characters likable. Right, which he doesn't succeed at. Well, right. And it's like you, uh, you've you argued that since that came out is that they're not likable people. Where I think to Tarantino they were likable. He, he, he liked those characters. Right, well he fetishizes weird things. Sure, absolutely. But it's like, again, like it didn't work for you because you didn't like those Agreed. characters. And I think that... it's. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think one of the reasons this movie works is because those characters are... For the most part, likable people, and they and they feel like real people. They don't feel like like those characters in Friday Thirteenth movies don't feel like real people most of the time to me. They're, again, and to my like, again, like I don't know why it's taken me fucking forty two years to realize this, but <laughs> um, I think it's because alcohol. <laughs> yeah, maybe I think it's because like you you look at like Jason, you look at Freddy, you look at Leatherface, you look at Michael Myers, Pinhead. Those are the characters that have the most depth, the most backstory, and the most screen time. So, even though you're supposed to be horrified and rooting against them, they're the people you quote-unquote identify with the most because they're the people you're shown the most. Sure. And Russ or whatever, the killer, he's he's the cardboard cutout. Mm-hmm. He's the guy that is just like this... I mean, and I think maybe it's purposeful, the fact that he's wearing this denim jacket and jeans mm-hmm. with the most boring haircut he could have, and he's just a normal-looking guy, and there's not, like, they don't talk about, you know, my mother, like, molested me, or, you know, I watched my parents die, or, like, all the things they do in other movies, you know, like, Jason has a huge mythology, Freddy has a huge mythology, mm-hmm. Myers has a huge mythology, but the, no the Myers does come later just because, I mean, the first two movies, it does focus a lot more on Jimmy Lee Curtis's character, Long Laurie Strode. Right. And again, why those first two movies are actually are really good The movies. good ones, that really good ones out of right. them is because you care <laughs> about Laurie Strode. Yeah. And it's it's not until after, it's not until the fourth um, Halloween movie where Myers is almost like, I guess because they felt the pressure of those other characters. Like, we got a... Yeah. You know, like, invest this almost, like, godlike, you know. I mean, they, they make him basically like a force of nature. Like, he's, right. um, like, basically the spirit of Halloween or whatever the fuck, like, justification sure. they give you in the later Halloween movies. Um, It's interesting. Like, I, I, I should go back and look at, like, horror movies that I really like and try and find ones where it's not the killer that you're, yeah. like, sort of forced to... 
identify with where it really is mm. the characters because a right. lot of times like characters the, the victims in horror movies there's actually a really good horror movie not to get off topic but it's it, it's a slasher movie so it's sort of relevant um the rise of leslie vernon mm-hmm. um came out in like the mid 2000s and it's done like docudrama style about the guy who's um like a burgeoning serial killer and he's like inventing this myth about himself and there's the college documentary crew that's following him around you remember like i i can't remember what the name of the movie is Mm-mm. it's it's like it's a title and then it's like colon the rise of leslie vernon or whatever um he wears like a turtle mask and anyway yeah fucking fantastic film like really well done really interesting almost like fourth wall breaking where they talk about like horror tropes, but they view people like Myers and Jason as real people behind the mask, behind the mask. That's it. Right. Um, but it also like, it examines things from that perspective where the victims are just normal people. Like they're not. And he is like fetishizing them so he can meet these horror tropes when he kills them. Um, and like setting up these set pieces with just normal people. Mm. Um, and it's a really good example. Like if, like, it's like a plug, if you've never seen this movie and this will actually probably come up when we get into the two thousands at some point, but behind the mask is an amazing fucking horror movie. And like really one of my favorite of the past, like 20 years, um, really great performances too. But this is this in a world where you couldn't probably be so overt about what you were trying to do. So there's, there is some subversion of the genre and there is some subtle, you know, like subtext to what she's trying to do in this movie. And I think Holton does a really good job of it. And Mm. it's really surprising to me that it's so low rated because I think it's really effective and I think it's a fun movie to watch. And I don't know, like, I don't know why people wouldn't enjoy it if they like horror movies. Yeah. Um, so the original script for this is written by, uh, Rita Mae Brown, who was a known feminist writer at the time. And people thought it was really weird that she was writing a slasher movie. Um, considering the stereotype that the genre had, not even the stereotype, what the genre was, which is, you know, women in peril a lot of times and, um, winning women being raped and beaten and killed. And so Amy Holden ends up direct, Amy Holden Jones ends up directing this, getting, directing this movie and goes to Roger Corman for money. Do you know all this? And Corman, so Corman makes her change it to a slasher movie. Well, they more more like, of a slasher movie. They, they make it less of like a parody or something. Right, yeah. Like the fe- there was a definitely feminist critique in the right. original script. Holden changes it to, you know, a little bit more of a slash, typical slasher movie. And then keeps some of these elements, I think, that are definitely subversive now at this point. Because it wasn't supposed to be as much about that. Right. And keeps some of these elements in. So, given that context, um, Tim Braden at AlternateEnding.com, we've heard from him a couple times in different... Um, for different horror movies. But um, he says that despite all of this, you know, um, a woman working from an explicitly feminist screenplay, that somehow the movie manages to be one of the slimiest, trashiest slasher movies of the subgenre's early period. It is male-gazy in ways most films directed by males can't even manage. In a shower scene, which the film lingers on and attends to with a stateliness and unhurried air that recalls the descriptions of battles and war and peace there's a shot that starts on a naked woman's soapy back tracks down to her ass looks at it for a few seconds and tracks back up 
If this was a satire, it's on some unbelievably rarefied level that I'm completely unable to comprehend. There's always the, quote, parody through sheer exaggeration argument, but that takes it takes a fantastically deft hand in Jones, who I reiterate was making her directorial debut on a film that had to make money for Roger Corman, does not have that kind of hand. No, woman in the director's chair or not, this is just one big pervy adventure in objectifying the ever-loving shit out of every female in the film that it can get its hands on. So, that's not true. Now, there's a lot of nudity in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of scantily clad women, even when they're not naked, in this film. <clears throat> that is true for 90% of every horror film from this time. Um, that that review, when is it from? Do you know? Uh, past 10 years. Okay. So, before we all became enlightened and, you know, like... a respectful of other people and unwilling to exploit you know some of us one of the things well i'm being like more facetious (laughs) one of the things that drew like people to watch horror movies was the prospect of titillation right not only in the sense of like watching like you know fictitious murders but also in the sense of seeing nudity sure you know as like a 12 year old boy like i was drawn to like I'm going to see some people die and I'm going to see some boobs, you know? And like, there was an appealing part of the horror genre. Now it's not the same anymore, you know, because times have changed, but Corman was fanatical about that. Every one of his movies was going to make money and he knew what made money. And this woman, like it's much more exploitive nudity in things like Friday the 13th, I think. Because even though, like, okay, is it really necessary to film him in the shower having these conversations? No. It's an excuse to put nudity in the film. 100%. <laughs> but you gotta look past that shit. Because that's just what these movies were. You know, it's like... And I would take it one step further and argue that that in itself... Because I had never seen this movie before. I went through all my life not seeing this movie. And I texted you the night that I was watching it. And it was after I watched that shower sequence. That's when I sat there and I said, is this like trying to be subversive? That was the clue that I was actually that shower scene that he's talking about was so over the top in terms of like how it lingered that I was like, this is, this is either the, one of the more grotesque examples of showing naked bodies that I can imagine in one of these slasher movies, or it is making a point. And I had seen that it was a female that had directed it when, when it started. And I was, and I thought like, that's even odder. And then the more I, and then I started trying to pay attention to stuff. And I think even that shower scene is supposed to be subversive. It's like, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. And it's like, I'm not going to even pull any punches. I'm going to pan this camera over. Right. Show you her soapy back. Go down to her ass. It's like, you know, you like this now? And then let me go back. Right. I I think that it was like, she's having fun knowing that, yes, all of that. Knowing that she needs to make money, that Corbin wants money, that this is what people want. She's still almost in some ways making fun of the viewer. Sure. And also, the other thing, too, that's interesting is... 
most nudity happens in a sexual context. Like, most nudity comes from people, like, getting ready to have sex or in the act of having sex and getting murdered there. And this nudity is, like, the least sexual context it could be because they're just, they're in the shower. There's, um, Prom Night 2, I think. Hello, Mary Lou? Yes, it's definitely Prom Night 2. Yeah. Has a scene towards the end where the possessed Mary Lou is chasing her friend and her friend is in the shower and is naked and is running through this locker room. Uh That's exploitive. Sure. Because there's no reason for that woman to be naked. It's just, it's nudity for nudity's sake. Yeah. Just to get it in the movie. Right. I, I sort of agree with you here that like, even though this is just nudity for nudity's sake, it is kind of like tongue in cheek, you know? And again, like... You couldn't make a horror movie in the 80s really without having boobs in some capacity. Sure. And we're going to talk about, in a couple couple months, one of my favorite movies that has a character that is naked throughout the entire movie mm. as a parody in a lot of ways. And I would like to see if he has the same complaint. And that's directed by a male director. So is that exploitive? Is that crass? Is that, like, trashy? Or is it just... People knew what people wanted to see. Like, you know, we have, like, on-demand pornography now for free, so you don't really care if you see nudity in movies. But back then, it kind of mattered if you had it because it was something that drew people into the theater. It's almost like we've become, like, puritanical in our need to be, I don't know, like, enlightened or something, where, like, we refuse to admit that, like, People like to see each other naked and people like sex. You know, I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with that shit. And in these movies, like, it was part of the appeal of it. So, fuck that guy. Fuck him more than fuck the toad guy. (laughs) Him and his fucking condescending ass. I I love this movie. This is one of my favorite horror movies of the entire 1980s. The only reason that it's not number one on this list is because I genuinely feel that the two movies in front of it are actually better movies. Um, you can tell that she's a rookie director, although she mm-hmm. makes some really, really good fucking choices. Mm-hmm. Like, the shot of the two dudes walking away from the um, phone repair van when he's killing the phone repair lady in the van is genuinely tense and, like, honestly makes me feel, like, a little, like, anxious when mm-hmm. I watch it because you're watching this woman die in easy shot of, like, people that could save her right. or at least, like, free her. And there's no hope to it. Like, it's really, like, an uncomfortable scene to watch. Same with, um, uh, when he's, um, who is the other one that he kills that's really, like, uncomfortable? When he kills the boys. Like, the one guy that's on the doorstep of the next door neighbor and is, like, so close to, like, being rescued. Like, being let into, like, again, like, this nice way that she films, like, the darkness of suburbia. With these little pockets of, like, illumination of, like, safety of these houses. Mm -hmm. And he's right there on that doorstep and he's, like, murdered, you know, right outside of that light. Because, like, he can't get them to come to the door and let him in because they can't hear him. Like, there's some really great directorial choices there that are kind of, like, bold and interesting. And, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's it's better than those scores give it credit for. And it's definitely, like, worth watching, I think. Yeah, I was, I was, I was surprised. By the movie, it was much better than I thought it would ever be. So, um, I thought it was a good slasher movie. Yeah, better than most of the slasher movies that we've talked about right, so far. Just, like, check your moral 
imperatives at the door and just enjoy the fucking movie, you assholes. We love you, fans. Let's go ahead and move on to number two. So number two on your list is Creepshow, directed by George Romero. All of these written by Stephen King? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, written by Stephen King. Starring in one sequence, Stephen King. There's a, This is an anthology, so there's uh, four different, sto- five different stories. And it, one of them starring Stephen King, one with Adrian Barbeau and Hal Holbrook, another with Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson, another with E.G. Marshall. It has a 71% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 68% from audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you want to go ahead? Well, how did you want to do this? Did you want to kind of talk about the different... Yeah, we'll just briefly talk about. Um, okay, so like the first the one, the first one in the movie is Father's Day. It's about a fifteen-minute segment. Right. So, it's it it's bookended like most anthologies. Like it really is like an homage to the um, like the anthology series of the seventies. Um, bookended by like a kid who's reading like a horror comic, mm-hmm. and his fa- overbearing father throws it away, and um, then his father gets his comeuppance in the end. Um, five segments, the first being, um, Father's Day, which is a tale of, like, revenge from beyond the grave of this overbearing patriarch of this family, uh, who was murdered by his, um, long-suffering daughter, uh, who comes back from the grave to get his Father's Day cake, um, and murders his family as a result. Uh, the second one is Lonesome Death of Jordy Barrel, uh, the one that stars Stephen King, um, sort of like a color out of space style, uh, story. Where Veril is a mostly unintelligent like hick who finds a meteorite um, and dreams of like gaining like a fortune by selling it to the university that becomes overrun by some like alien plant fungus that overcomes him and ends up taking his own life. Um, the third one is it'll tide you over. I think is what it's called. Uh, something to tide. So, over. Something to tide. Yeah. Um, Leslie Nielsen playing a rich husband getting revenge on his cheating wife and her lover by burying them up to the neck in like the shore drowning them and they come back as reanimated like uh, pretty disgusting like bloated like waterlogged corpses and end up doing the same thing to him like burying him in the you know in the sand to die Uh, the fourth one is the crate um Again, a long-suffering husband um, with a nagging wife. Um, There's a crate that's found in the basement of a university, or under a staircase in the university, that contains, like, a ridiculous-looking monster that's basically, like, murderous and cannibalistic, and um, the guy uses it to to try and kill his his wife. Uh, The fifth one is... They're creeping up on you. Story of, like, a Howard Hughes-esque guy that's... um, Basically in like a electronically sealed, like hermetically sealed apartment um, while during a blackout gets overrun by cockroaches and killed, like it induces a heart attack in him. Um, and then the end where the kid with his voodoo doll that he got, like from he ordered from his comic book, like murders his father, basically. Um, some of the segments aren't quite as good as others. Like I like every segment, I think more than what you did. Um, in my opinion, the strongest two are probably, uh, Jordy Verrill is really good, um, in his simplicity and like it's, it's horror. Um, I think they're creeping up on you is also pretty horrific. 
Um, just from somebody that's not like a huge fan of bugs in general, like that idea of basically being like murdered by bugs. Um, the crate I think is probably the most, the best directed segment, but also maybe a little overlong. Um, but has some really good scenes in it. And, uh, Barbo as the nagging wife, um, is really like effective as, I don't know, like a villain in her own way. Um, I like the charm of uh, Father's Day. Um, something something to tie you over is in, like maybe my least favorite segment. Mm. Just because, again, like it's a little overlong for what it is. Like even though it's like building the tension of um, like Nielsen tricks Stanson into the beach and buries him up to his neck. And then like has him like watch the tide roll in, which is honestly like a really uncomfortable like thought. But also... It's like maybe 10 minutes too long, I think. Um, maybe not even, but it, it just, to me, it's like the least interesting segment overall. But also maybe the most traditional in like the sense of the, like the amicus um, hammer anthology style that it's going for. Um, the whole movie is an homage to uh, the EC comics from the 60s that basically were banned by the... Um, the Comics Act, like the Comics Code Act, um, as being like too subversive, too, um, too vile. Uh, there's actually a companion graphic novel that came out with this movie <clears throat> that's done in that same style that was illustrated by Bernie Wrightson, uh, one of my favorite like artists from the 70s and 80s, who's very much like very fine detail. Um, really amazing, like, use of, like, angle, and honestly, the, the, the graphic novel is, is a better adaptation of the King stories than the movie. Um, and then Tom Savini does the effects in the movie and actually adds, like, a lot of comic elements in the terms of, like, the way that scenes are framed and the way that they're wiped, and even including at times, like, multiple shots as, like, comic book frames, um, of the same thing where, like, it makes Mm -hmm. you, like, read the screen like you're reading a comic book um it's just it's it's a really it hits a bunch of different like tropes of the horror genre um you know it's got like zombie revenge it's got um like the threat from outer space like again sort of like the color out of space or the blob um like the creature that through scientific curiosity is like unleashed and ends up like being like una- they're unable to control on the idea of being you know like the claustrophobic idea of being like stuck or trapped or you know in like this room and being overrun by things um really like competently directed by Romero uh, who doesn't really have much left in him at this point in terms of like making good movies um but just like a really, I don't know. It's it it's fun to watch. Like I'm I'm a huge fan of horror anthologies. Um, <clears throat> I really love like the horror anthologies of the '70s, and there's like a bunch of them that maybe at some point we'll talk about, <clears throat> you know, on the podcast. But really, like a strong cast, surprisingly, of um well-known actors. You know, it's got a who's in it. Um, Peter Weller is in it, right? He's in the... Or no, not Peter Weller. Ed Harris. Yeah, Ed Harris in the first one. Yeah. 
um, Ted Danson, uh, Adrian Barbeau. Right. Hal Holbrook. Yeah, Hal Holbrook. Uh, Stephen King and maybe, like, right. the most uh, surprising and impressive performance. Yeah. Um, Joe Hill, who wrote, uh, like, Nosferatu and Horns and mm-hmm. the Lock and Key comic plays his son in the bookend segments, mm-hmm. which is also like, right. a pretty cool little, yeah. like, trivia nugget. Um, which I think Lock and Key is actually being adapted. <coughs> This year, yeah, to, um, to FX, yeah, um, and also Creepshow um, is going to be a Shutter exclusive series this year, mm. um, all based on stories from Stephen King's uh, novella anthologies like Skeleton Crew and the um, what's the one? It's Skeleton Crew, Night Shift, Four Past Midnight. Like I think they're pulling yeah. from a lot of those different ones, uh, which. In the creep show like series, like they had pulled stuff from them, uh, specifically too with um, the raft and whatnot. But yeah. I don't know, just a really well. Let's let's go one by one, and I'll kind of try to set it up okay. for you here. So <coughs> I hate Father's Day. Right. It was I, my I least really favorite. Like, I really like Father's Day. I, I just didn't think it was that interesting of a concept overall. And I didn't really understand, other than the idea of the Revenant, like, right. what the horror was, really, of it. Like, it just felt like a meander to me to for for what wasn't a very good payoff. Meander over, like, 12 minutes, because it's pretty short. Yeah, and it still felt really long, which I think is how you feel about something to tie it over. But just a little long. Yeah. Something to tie you over. Yeah. Um, I, I... It's weird because I think the practical effects in Father's Day are not that great. Like, I think the zombie creature itself feels a little too... It feels a little too much like a guy in a costume as opposed to an actual, like, walking corpse. And there definitely were movies that were able to do that just, like, to good effect up to this point. So, it's a little bit of an odd, like, misstep in my opinion. But I don't know if that's because they were trying to make it feel comic booky. Um... I'll tell you, and I, I said this to you off air the other night, um, if you ever have the chance to read the graphic novel adaptation, um, this so the all the characters except for two are killed by this revenant, like the father who's risen from the grave. Father was like shown in flashback to be like a tyrant and a terrible person, and they made their fortune through like murder and extortion. The father murdered the lover of his 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 daughter, who he then forces to take care of him, and she's the one that kills him ultimately. Um, it ends with the matriarch of the family getting her head twisted off by the corpse who then like festoons it with candles and icing so he can uh, finally have his father's day cake mm-hmm. um, the comic adaptation that scene is really well done and like horrifically illustrated like it's one of I think one of the most effective like pages I've seen in a horror comic ever um, and maybe that's why, like, I appreciate that scene more mm. because I always think about that. Um, it, it, it's a pretty standard tale. I mean, there's yeah. not really much, like, it's not really an interesting take on the dead returned, except for the fact that the guy was a villain in life and then becomes a villain in death. But no one in the family is really, I don't know, like, you don't really feel, like, sympathy for any of them. So they're just kind of getting what they deserve. Um... Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill is that's, being that's my favorite. I'm yeah, for, for being as short as it is, it's probably the most effective segment in the whole movie. Um, and most of it comes from 
the, honestly, like, the legitimate, like, like sad pathos that King, like, in, invests in this character who is very dim and just through trying to, like, better his situation, like, basically causes his own death. Yeah. Um, and the, the scene where he's making the decision to end his life by blowing his head off with a shotgun as he's becoming, like, completely overrun by this alien like fungus or whatever is it's it's pretty horrifying to watch yeah it, it, it's the most horrifying concept in in the entire thing to me is the idea of being overtaken by some sort of yeah. becoming a plant basically and having to be put in the situation of ending your own life i mean i find that to be the most horrifying yeah, it's concept horrifying. out of any of these the, short films the practical effects in it are really good too because yeah. the way they um just like whatever they use in terms of like, you know, like prosthetics or whatever to do the plant life, it, it really does feel like infested and overrun and hopeless a lot of ways. And like mm-hmm. the way like you seeing his house at the end and just the plants all over everything. And like when he pulls the shotgun away and there's like bits of like plant matter like falling off of it. And it's just it's it's yeah. really well done. and. Mm-hmm. I'm um, a really good scene. And King, like, I don't know. Like, I don't really think Stephen King is a great actor, but he's really good in that role. I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something to Tide You Over is, is a pretty standard, like, almost like noir-esque setup. And I think that's probably why it's my second favorite. Yeah. Is, yeah. Um, with the with the twist that they come back from from their watery graves to kill Leslie Nielsen. Um, and I probably also, I'm probably influenced by this time in my life, too, of knowing the actors in it like so it sticks in my memory more because of course i like by the time i saw this probably like in mid to late 80s uh ted danson's massive as a sitcom star right on cheers you might know Leslie nielsen by that point too. by that but i might have known him by this point from the first right of the first naked gun even Mm -hmm. yeah it's like 87 88 so I mean, look, it's it's fine. Yeah, um, I, actually, I really like Leslie Nielsen as the villain in this. Yeah, though. he does a good job as a yeah. villain. Like it, it's well acted, and mm-hmm. Danson does a good job as sure. like, the growing realization mm-hmm. that he's definitely going to die, yeah. and him becoming like. And I think another like just classically horrific idea right. of being buried up horrifying. to your head and and drowning, drowning, right. drowning by slow increments. Sure, right. I mean, that's one of the best things is Leslie Nielsen's like you're going to have to learn to hold your breath for a really long time. Right. Like as he's like walking away yeah. from the thing and dancing, like doing like the deep breaths and holding it as mm-hmm. the waves crashing against yeah. his face. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the zombie effects in this one a lot mm-hmm. better than the first one. I agree. Um, especially the way the bullets, it's almost like shooting into the water, the way the bullets kind of like mm-hmm. bubble out the flesh and then there's just like a slow ooze right. of like thick, like viscous like fluid mm-hmm. from the wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that they shoot a lot of it through security camera footage, right? Um, where it's like the zombies are always kind of off camera, so you feel the creep mm-hmm. towards Leslie Nielsen without actually seeing it right. until the very like until the moment. Um, so it's well done. Yeah. Again, like I just think it's maybe just a tiny bit too long yeah. for me. Um, the next one is the one that I think is over I, the, long. The, the crate is too long. Yeah. Like there's too much in it. Yeah. Um, again, I think that that. Because the monster is terrible. The monster is probably the worst practical effect. You know what they spend too much time on? It's it's the stuff, it's the whole monster stuff outside of Hal Holbrook. It seems like they spend way too much time on that element right, of that it. that monster murders, like, what, like, two or three people two before or, the Hal sure, Holbrook right. even, like, comes yeah. about? 
But Adrian Bargo is yes. fantastic as a villain. Yeah. I mean, she's a really despicable human being. And sure. someone that you definitely want to see get her come up in yeah. like by the time it happens. Uh-huh. Um, again, I I'm, I think that segment's better if it's like 10 minutes less yeah. and the monster is more effective. I, I, agree. I think the monster is just too goofy looking. Um, because okay. it really does just look like a Halloween mask on. Yeah, because I think Barbeau's really good in this. She seems to like relish the idea of being able to play this role where right. she's just despicable. Right. Just a. And absolute. I think Holbrook's really good as this kind of downtrodden, passive professor who yeah. secretly harbors these intent, this intense hatred for his wife. I mean. And sees a way to kill her without actually killing her. killing her because he's so damn passive. And I, I think it's a really interesting concept. And I think even that a little bit take away the monster. It's also very noirish in some ways. It is. Um, <clears throat> I mean, King likes that idea. Like King yeah. likes the like putting the supernatural into like the standard mm-hmm. like mystery. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if it's a little shorter, I think it would have been much more effective. Yeah, but like the setting is nice, it's well filmed. Yeah, yeah. The whole like college campus thing is well done. Yeah. Um, even the idea of the crate, like the ancient crate underneath the mm-hmm. stairs, that was hidden away because somebody knew that like you know this thing was unkillable and undying, but yeah. they could never let it out. Right. Um, that in itself, like conceptually, is is scary. It just the execution isn't that great. Um, and then they're creeping up on you. Like, again, to me, that's probably the most horrific, um, just from the bug aspect. And also, like, the cockroach is, like, erupting from his body. I see. I, the, the body's so fake-looking by the time it erupts from his body that I, I it doesn't have right, any to appeal me, to it's, me. It's more the idea than... Yeah, and see, I, I hate bugs just as much as you do, I think. Like... Probably more, actually. Probably, yeah. I mean, for those that don't know, it's like if... If a light is left on outside, like I get irrationally during the summertime, I get irrationally angry because I hate walking through bugs to get into a house. So, um, but I don't know. I just didn't feel this one at all, really. Like, I think it spends too much time with those, as you said, Howard Hughes aspects of things. Right. Well, that's what it's building towards. Yeah. But it's just like, I just didn't think it was a very interesting, again, there, I don't have a lot of sympathy Right, he's not a very sympathetic guy. Right, and it's like, I think without that sympathy, I just don't, you know, I, I don't know. I, I understand. I mean, to me, think. it's it's more the idea. In the same way that, like, I appreciate the crate for the idea, I just think the execution yeah. is poor. <clears throat> like, I agree that the execution yeah. is not the best, but... Our good friend Dave Kerr actually thought that the... <laughs> um, they're creeping up on you was the best, most effective segment out of the entire thing, which I, again, I... Probably for the same reason that I find it effective, just because it's like such a horrific idea. There's um, I think there's a scene in an, there's an episode in an early Buffy, the guy that's made of bugs. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Uh-huh. Yep, yep, yep. Um, it yeah. kind of reminds me of that because that honestly, like, I wish that that would have been a more prevalent character yeah. in that series. Because second season episode, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> yeah, I thought. Yeah, that's that's. I remember that. That's good stuff. I So, well, real quick. So Dave Kerr, he does bring up an interesting point here. He says he seems to hint that Romero the direction isn't very effective he thinks a lot of times throughout the movie. And he's and he, and he's he seems to be a fan of Romero. He says that um 
he says the results here are only mildly interesting compared to the standards of his dead trilogy. Right. And he says that the the majority of Romero's concerns in those films, like intra-family, intra-communal violence, um, horror of quantity, um, and stuff like that, it only comes through a little bit because of the anthology aspect of the movie and that it limits some of his power as a director because it's broken up into so many pieces that he doesn't that it, that it ends up hurting him his direction hmm. and is therefore less powerful well, that's, overall i mean that's an interesting so the reason that most anthology series are effective is because they're typically the segments are directed by different people mm-hmm. um a lot of times um, Romero actually does another anthology later that's much more effective and I don't know if you can really consider two segments to be an anthology but like Two Evil Eyes that he does about 10 years after this mm-hmm. um, is a much more effective film um, but it also is just one story that he's filming from you know beginning to end um, him and Argento it's, it's actually a, a, it's worth watching I think it's free somewhere mm-hmm. like I, I guess I can see that but I don't necessarily think that I think it's like very broad strokes and it captures what it needs to capture. And I don't know that the direction actually matters as much in an anthology. Um, and I think there's still are some decent directorial choices, especially in the Jordy Barrel um, and the Tide You Over segment. Um, both have some pretty good like directorial choices in them. The last thing I'll ask you is Time Out London claims that they think the old Anarchist movies did much better with the EC originals than this does. Do you agree with that overall? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, again, like this, this is an homage to all of those things. Yeah. And, um, like the Amicus stuff, the Hammer stuff, um, fuck, I can't remember the other, uh, company that made these anthology films. Like they, they, they definitely, and I, it's also like they're, they're mostly British. And I think that, there's like a certain sensibility that comes from the reserved nature of like British cinema that lends itself more to the anthology because it is more about like the Twilight Zone-esque like here's your setup, here's the twist. Here's your mm-hmm. setup, here's the twist. And maybe it does suffer because Romero... I don't know. I, I mean, I can't really I, don't, I can't really answer that. I, 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 it's not as good as some of the Amicus ones. I'll, I'll give you that, but it's still a really entertaining horror movie and it's well done. And I think it's got some good ideas and some good performances. Um, and I think that it holds up today. Like, I think that <clears throat> it's just as good as a lot of horror that's made today. I just yeah, wish the special I, effects were a little better in sure. some, some instances. Yeah. Again, really surprising because it's Savini. So you would think that, right. But I really think that they were trying to make it cartoony. Like, I think that's on purpose. That it's never as realistic or vile as it could be because they really are trying to make a cartoon movie, like a living cartoon. Yeah, I think I, I, I get the sense that that's probably correct just from watching it. But again, like if if you have any interest in it, because yeah. it's still available in print um, on eBay, you know, you can get like used copies and you can still get it on Amazon, I believe I looked it up. Um, the Creepshow graphic novel from this is amazing. Yeah. And Bernie Bernie Wrightson's artwork is just like top notch. Like that dude is the best like horror illustrator ever. I think maybe. 
and I watched this a number of times because I think it was probably on HBO or something as a child. Um, so I seen it, I saw it a lot, and maybe it was just on television a lot. I don't know. I it was was yeah, because um, but I mean, it certainly stuck with me because even like it was like what two or three months ago, I had that dream where I was um like basically Jordy Verrill. Right. stuff where it's like i was being overtaken by like a plant so mm-hmm. it's like that shit still was somewhere in my brain like you know lurking there yeah. and came out in some nightmare but um yeah i, I think it's effective overall i mean i right. like certain seg- segments more than others but it's it's, it's a, a good fun movie. movie yeah I it's, agree. it's worth watching if you sure. have the <clears throat> i think this one's available on um voodoo i think is where i rented it yeah, yeah i think it was on uh google as well I watched it on there. Yeah, I don't ever use Google. Play. Google Play. Yeah. Um, okay, you ready to move on to number mm-hmm. one? Okay, so number one on the list is Tanabre, directed by Dario Argento, starring Anthony Franciosa, John Saxon, and Daria Nicolodi. Uh, it has a 74% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 78% oh, from audiences. <clears throat> I, yeah, that's, that's surprising to me. All right. Do you want to tell them a little bit about what this movie is about? Uh, so Peter Neal is a mystery, like crime novel writer from America. He's in Rome on like a book tour. <clears throat> um, as he's landing in Rome, there's a young prostitute, I guess she is, that's like murdered in her apartment. Um, and one of the pages from his most recent novel is stuffed in her mouth. Uh, so the police believe that it's the beginning of like a serial killer that's obsessed with him and his novels. Um, number of people die uh, while he's trying to figure out like who it is that's setting him because he gets threatening letters. Um, there's a lot of like subtle twists to it, but it there's a guy that's an interviewer, like a book reviewer slash film like TV personality that's interviewing him. That seems particularly obsessed with, like, the ideas of, like, sex and violence in his novels. And he's sort of, like, outed as, like, the main suspect. And then you see him sort of admit to... You see him, like, not sort of, like, admit to killing the people. But then he's killed himself. So then the question is, who is this other killer? Um, and it turns out that it is Peter Neal. Uh, that he was crazy because some girl stuck her stiletto in his mouth, like, when he was a kid. And he murdered her then. And he's still, like, continuing to murder people. Um, plot wise, I mean, I think plot wise is fine. I think there's maybe a little too many like twists to it where it sort of gets like unwieldy, maybe a little bit in terms of its plot. Um, but with all of Argento stuff, like it's amazing to look at, like it's a beautiful film and, um, his use of color in this movie Mm. Uh, is top notch and probably just as good as like his use of color in like Inferno and uh, Suspiria and all of them different though right that's well, what's because, amazing yeah he's trying to like <clears throat> he's like like pushing different emotions and different ideas on you through his use of color mm. and in this one it's more about like darker hues and it's about like repressed psychosis and and there's a lot of but there's a lot of pastels yeah kind of like a lot of like blues and kind of pinks and uh, yeah and greens like there the but it's like there's not one standard color which is interesting it's it's a lot of different but it's more of like a feeling and it's like pastel seems to be the feeling to me in some ways um 
And a lot more white than usual as well. Yeah, that's true. Particularly, um, I wonder sometimes, and actually I, I should have paid attention to this when I watched it again. I've seen this movie like three or four times, I think. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, I think this was called Unsane for Unsane, it is. in the United States. Yep. Um, this might actually be the first Argento movie I ever saw. I can't remember the exact sequence, but if it's it's either this or Deep Red or is my first Argento. Or no, this or Phenomena or Deep Red. One of those three. But this was definitely one of the earliest Argentos I ever saw. Um, I'm wondering if maybe the change in color is depending on who's actually killing. Mm. Like, depending on who is the one that's performing the murder. Right. As to what colors are used. Yeah. And I'm wondering if the Peter Neal stuff is more of, like, the traditional Argento, like, um, like colored filter, you know, like murders and maybe because mm-hmm. the guy that's killing the people who are like quote unquote like sexual deviants, um, so it's prostitutes, some lesbians, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like the young girl who can't like mind her own business. Right. Um, those those scenes are more like naturally lit mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and the Peter Neal killing scenes are lit with more of like a unnatural light and i'm mm-hmm. wondering if that's supposed to be like a visual clue early on that you're not seeing I, yeah i'd have to watch that again this is interesting yeah um because you think about like when they die so the prostitute dies in her apartment yeah um with like soft lighting and uh-huh. like the lacy windows and sure the and and the, the coloring screen. is coming in those scenes. Again, it's like a very white, but the coloring is coming from the furniture and right. the carpets and all those things. Yeah. Um, the prostitutes or the lesbians are murdered in their apartment. Yes. And it's, right. um, Again, same thing. Roughly. Right. And then the young girl is murdered in... Uh, she's in the house itself, right? When she yeah. was murdered, I think. Yeah. Um, but again, it's like naturally lit. And it it's, is. It's, it's lit by the sun. And everything's naturally lit in the early Peter Neal scenes before those killings either start or before you, it's revealed that he was killing, he's also been killing people. But but that's where a lot of the pastel stuff comes in. Right. But so when he, so the first person that he kills, I think, is the original killer. Right. And you don't know it's him at that point. That's very he's, blue, that scene. Right. And again, so that's blue. Um... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it might it might be a clue. Yeah. So it, but yeah, but it's a beautiful movie. I mean, I I when I was watching it, my my level of watching because I never seen it before. My level was just like more like uh pretty, <laughs> more than me thinking about the how he was using the coloring. And there might be an actual so rationale there. Well, one of the one of my personal complaints with this movie. Um, and I don't think, I, I think he controls himself a little more like later in his career. Um, a couple, like he has phenomena after this, which is maybe my favorite of his movies. And also, um, opera, which is another movie that I, I like quite a bit of his. I think that he, he just puts too much in it. There's too many moving parts in this movie that are supposed to like, keep you guessing as to who the killer is mm. um that it kind of gets away from him a little bit like the subplot of his public his like his publishing agent having an affair with his wife and that he was like sexually humiliated as a child and that 
he has this long standing. That was a like, really uncomfortable scene, though. When she puts the stiletto in the his st- mouth. The stiletto yeah, in his mouth. Really yeah. Really it's a really uncomfortable scene. It actually, so, it, I, I was wondering watching it this last time. Um, in Persona, the Bergman movie. Yeah. Um, there's a scene where the two women are talking and the one woman's talking about how, like, her and a friend went down to the beach to, like, sunbathe and they saw boys looking at them and then, like, they basically had sex with these two boys. Mm-hmm. Um, they had, like, like one-night stand affairs with these two boys on the beach. Yeah. And the way that he films those flashback scenes of the girl who's kind of just, like, giving herself to all these boys on the beach and, uh-huh. like humiliating him as a kid at the yeah. same time. I was wondering if like Argento was sort of maybe inspired by that because it huh. sort of has the same feeling of like Interesting. wanton lust like on the beach and I haven't seen Persona in like <clears throat> 15 years, but that that's, that's interesting. Um and not where I ever thought uh, this list would end up bearing up right. Bergman, but but again, like so many moving parts to it and they want you to like the daughter of his landlord that gets murdered. You know, there's like a, one of the most effective scenes in the movie where she's had like a bad date with her boyfriend and she's trying to walk home. And there's this Rottweiler that's like, or Doberman Pinscher or mm-hmm. something that's like chasing her. And it's horrifying because mm-hmm. like the dog is so fast and so quiet, like almost like a missile like coming at her. And she's like trying to get away and the dog keeps like attacking her. And it eventually leads to her getting chased to the original killer's house and leads to her death and it's just it's so fucking effective like to watch and really uncomfortable because i have like an honest like fear of like being attacked by dogs even though i get along pretty well with most dogs but so there's it's it's interesting trauma there too (laughs) so these story elements you're talking about that you dislike in it I don't dislike like, oh, that. Is, that is overpacks that that right, that, that, that aspect of it. Like, is like, you think it's too much? Um, so the films that we've talked about so far on the podcast right. of Argento's, do you feel those in any way suffer from that? No. Okay. Because the other Argento movies, they he's not a very good storyteller. Uh huh. In terms of like. The narrative and the dialogue. Like, his right. his power as a storyteller comes in his visual storytelling. Sure, absolutely. He gets better at this later. Like, Phenomena yeah. is a much tighter movie. Opera is a much tighter movie. Yeah. That also have their moving parts, but control those moving parts hmm. more. This is more of, like, a traditional, like, Giallo movie, which is what he was known for before yeah. this. Um, but in trying to build so much mystery, it just gets away from him. Like, Suspiria, yeah. at its core, is the story of one girl. And there's other characters and other things that happen, but it really is just about one girl and her experience. And Inferno, at its core, is the story of, like, a brother and sister, you know, in two halves of a movie, and their experiences with the supernatural. Just to refer to movies that we've talked about. Right, and that's what... That, but I wanted to make... So... Because <clears throat> here's the interesting thing that I find, is that I found that... Others are the, the the criticism is actually the main criticism of this movie is mimicking what you're saying is that the movie there there's too there's too much going on at times that it's not very coherent or polished in terms of a storytelling aspect only right. that um, almost everybody raves about is visuals you right. know so um, second movie 
Suspiria. Oh, Inferno. Inferno. So I, I, I said that I thought Inferno was, I thought, better overall in terms of a storytelling than Suspiria was. And I think the reason right. for that now that now that I have a little bit more distance from it, and I'm comparing it to this now too, is that I think sometimes he has these big sequences, long sequences sometimes, right, of deaths and tension building towards those deaths. And I think Suspiria is just a lot of those just put together with these little things trying to hold a narrative sure. between them. And I think that Inferno. One of the reasons I think in a lot of ways I liked that better was because it did have a story that it was telling throughout and it had a through line that I could follow along with. Plus it had those things right. and those things naturally led from the narrative. Less of to some things, Inferno is a lot less it does. And this here, I think that for this, and I was surprised by the criticism and I'm a little bit surprised by you saying it too and pointing it out here and not those other places as much. And maybe it's the power of the visuals there that you're more interested in. I'm mm. not sure, but I found it interesting that I actually thought this was the most coherent storytelling that I've seen so far out of so, those three movies. Don't don't get me wrong, like the story is coherent. Like mm-hmm. you can follow the story. It's just that I thought it was the best story that I've seen out of those I three think movies. It's, I think it's a brilliant idea to have two separate killers and not let you know that there's two right. separate killers until fifty five percent of the way through the movie. Right. And then make you guess who's mm-hmm. this other killer. Right. <clears throat> I think that's really good. Mm-hmm. I just think that... I think in an effort to give you so many, like, red herrings, I think he... I think he overextends some of it. And I think, like, pulling back... Maybe, maybe like, don't make the publisher having an affair with his wife. You know what I mean? And I, I don't know. I see, I know, I see what you're saying. I, I do, yeah. It, it works to a point. Yeah. You know, and like, like I find it much more interesting that he's, you can tell that he's in love with his, with, with, with Daria Nicolini's right. character and that she's been in love with him for decades and he's never, mm-hmm. never given in to like, yeah. you know, her desire. And then they finally do. And then that's when like, you know, yeah. when you find out that he's a murderer basically right. is after that. Like, I find that much more interesting psychologically mm-hmm. and from, like, a narrative standpoint than I do this almost tacked-on subplot. Because they never build any reason for you to think that he even cares, like, about his wife. Right. Except that she's crazy and she followed him to Rome and maybe that's her and maybe it's not. And then they don't especially give you any reason to care that the guy's having an affair with her because it just comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I honestly, the reason I thought that he included that well, so maybe you would think there was the publisher that was killing. Him? I thought that I think that's possible. I but I think it's also develop. It's trying. I think he's trying to develop in the movie the psychological, the possible psychological explanation of why he's doing these things. And I think oh, because maybe she he discovered she was having an affair and it made him feel like he felt when he saw the girl. Uh, possibly, but right. it's like I uh, I think that it's like I think he abhors sexuality of any sort. Especially deviant sexuality, but I think he abhors sexuality of any sort, and I think that her having an affair with him might be some sort of possible indicator of a lack of a sexual relationship between the two of them. Maybe, and that 
I mean, it could just be the, you're right, like, you know, the, the, the sense of, like, you know, being, he's being cuckolded and, like, he's pissed off and he kills her, maybe. But it's like, right. he also, as soon as he does have a sexual relationship with that assistant, suddenly that's when he turns on her, too. So it's like, it's almost like sex itself is something that he sees as bad and, like, those people need to be punished then at that point. Right. So I'm wondering if he's, Argento wasn't trying to develop a psychological profile in some ways of this sure pseudosex you know this um psychosexual killer and i i, I can't believe that we're on these individual sides of this argument because we're reversed in a lot of ways <laughs> right yeah if i gotta put that much thought into it like i don't know yeah, that yeah. it's necessarily that effective. i just thought it was much more interesting from a story though it actually sucked me in more than those other movies right. did from a storytelling now, aspect listen visually I, I think we're on the same page right? i love this movie yeah like narrative qualms aside i yeah. still think it's got like a pretty solid story that it tells. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I do really love the idea of two killers in it. Yeah. And the fact that like thinking like about the visual way that they're portrayed, that he really is telling you early on that there's two people doing the killing. Um, I love the ending. Like I like him getting killed by the glass sculpture thing. And mm-hmm. then the surprise like pop back up and sure. it, it's really well done. Yeah. Um, the blood is terrible in that scene. Like, the blood really just looks like tempera paint or whatever. Yeah, but, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I, it's it's always going to be difficult for me to not put an Argento movie on this list when we get to an Argento movie that comes out in any given year. Mm-hmm. Because no matter how, no matter what, like, I think that Argento is always going to treat, like, visually. Like, it's mm-hmm. always going to be an interesting thing to watch and... I think you're going to pull... It's the same thing with Fulci. Like, I feel that... I mean, Fulci makes some terrible movies, but they at least are always beautiful. Like, there's... But this is... I'm trying to remember. This is the third time Argento's been number one on a horror list, right? I think it is. Was Suspiria number one in the 70s? I think so. I think he might have had... Was Inferno number one in 80... I knew it was Evil Dead was number one. Are you sure? I'm almost positive. I would have to go back. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I honestly can't imagine. It's still really high. It's a really high praise. I mean, I know you love Argento. I do. Yeah. I mean, Argento is one of my oddly, he was one of my first loves in horror. Like one of the first directors, it was him. It was Romero. It was Raimi. Um, Fulci a little later, but like Argento is one of the first guys where I wanted to see everything he did. And the first, one of the first directors, even more so than those other guys, except for maybe Raimi, but Raimi didn't really even have much when I was a kid, like two movies until Army of Darkness came out and plus Crime Wave, but I don't count that. Um, Argento is one of the first guys where you can clearly see a visual thread through his movies where he feels like a director that matters because he's able to invest so much artistry in what he's making. And it, it really like, especially as like a pretentious, you know, teenager, like those movies, they feel like something greater than a slasher movie. Like you're watching something that, and when I, I'm really excited because we will talk about phenomena at some point, like spoilers mm-hmm. aside, like that's, I love that movie so mm-hmm. much. And like, that's to me the culmination of this visual, like 
power that this guy has. And I don't know, like I, he's to, to me, he's one of the most important directors of the seventies and eighties that I think doesn't get the credit he deserves just because I think he's sort of fallen out of favor um, over the past 20 years. And rightly so. He's a weirdo. He's a creep. Um, he definitely has over-sexualized his daughter in some uncomfortable ways. Sure. Um, he's not made very many good movies over the past 20 years. But man, like, through the 70s and 80s, like, that dude was amazing. And, like, I love the shit out of some Argento movies from that time. So it's really always going to be difficult for me to not say that anything that he does is better than, like, the fair from other people. All right, so yeah, I thought this was a good movie. I thought it was I, I thought it was one of the better things I've actually seen of Argento's. Um, even though some of the visuals might be more impressive than some of his earlier horror movies, I thought this was very well filmed though too. Yeah, like, oh, he, yeah, he I, does a really good job of like agreed. Like when when the scenes of them like realizing that his wife might be there in Rome, like stalking him, are really well done and right. like. Her in the phone booth and her driving away in the car and, like, the way they build it, maybe she might be the killer. And mm-hmm. it's just, yeah. I don't know, it's really well done. And, yeah. like, in the current climate where I think there's a lot of, like, renewed fascination with the idea of serial killers and, you know, like, psychosis. And there's definitely a lot of, like, modern things that are tackling those ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mindhunters, the Versace thing. Right. Just a bunch of stuff. Like, I, I, I think that from a modern perspective, it's definitely worth, like, watching. And I think a lot of people would probably really enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, and I think that's what maybe why I enjoyed it much more is because I am interested in those things. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, so, thank you, everybody, for listening. Over the next um, month, what we'll be looking at is next week we'll be doing the top five Shakespeare tragedy adaptations. Uh, which, just spoiler, Frank, normally I have two pages of notes for every episode. We have four pages for that mm-hmm. next week. So maybe wind up um, going as long as that Brawn a Hamlet movie um, with the podcast. We'll see. <clears throat> so we have that coming up next week. Second week, we have uh, Marvin Cole, a friend of ours. We'll be coming over with our, for a third man series. We'll be doing the best of Eddie Murphy. Then we'll be taking a break. And then in the last week of the month, we will be coming back with the top five horror B movies of 1983. So thank you again for listening. Have a great week. Yep, have a good night.